Look, I believe in one simple truth. You don't have to be superhuman to be a superhero. There are heroes all around us. Heroes of culture, business, philanthropy, and technology. And on this show, I'm going to talk to them all. My name is Joe Anthony, and this is Hero Talk. Welcome to another episode of Hero Talk, the show where we talk to ordinary people doing extraordinary things, heroes of culture, philanthropy, business, and technology, who all have one thing in common, they want to change the world. And today, I'm so honored to have the incomparable Beth Fairchild. What's up, girl? How you doing? What's up? It's good to be here. <laughs> so, I'm so happy and so excited to have you here today. This is the first time that we've actually got a chance to meet, right? Um, but I've become such a fan of yours from the first time that we kind of worked together tangentially because um, you work with us on the Story Half Told program. Right. And the pictures that came out of that program were so provocative, so amazing. And um, I just got enchanted, not just because you're such a beautiful woman, yeah, but because you're you. so expressive and so willing to kind of tell a story about who you are, your journey, your plight, and what you're experiencing every day. Um, I'm just so happy to have you here to finally get a chance to talk to you live. So again, thanks again for yeah, joining I'm us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. My awesome. pleasure. So just to kind of give um, the viewers a little primer, um, you, one, one are like the busy, busiest girl I know, right? <laughs> because you're a, you're a yoga instructor, you're a tattoo artist, you're a mom, um, you're a wife, um, you're the president of an amazing advocacy organization for metastatic breast cancer um, called Metaviver. But more importantly, you're a woman living with metastatic breast cancer. Um, that's a lot, right? Um, but before we kind of go into who um, Beth Fairchild is, I would like you to kind of give the audience an understanding of what metastatic breast cancer is because there is a lot of kind of misperceptions out there. Um, so talk a little bit about what is metastatic breast cancer, when you were diagnosed, and a little backstory on kind of um, on how you found out. And sure, so metastatic breast cancer is any time breast cancer has left the breast. So early stage, zero through three, the cancer stays primarily in the breast mm -hmm. tissue. Um, those cells um, in breast cancer can disseminate from the original tumor and travel through your lymph system or your bloodstream, and they can lie dormant in your body for years and years before taking up residence somewhere else. Mm. And once that happens, then your cancer is metastatic, and at that point, it's terminal, it's incurable. Um, you know, it's a little different than early stage people because we're in treatment forever. There's no mm -hmm. end of chemo or end of treatment, ring mm -hmm. the bell and go on with your life. It's something you know, that you're going to have to deal with every day until the end. Um, I was diagnosed at 34 years old. I was in the best shape of my life. I was in the gym five days a week and I mm -hmm. ate clean and you know, I never drank, never smoked. Um, I thought I was probably one of the healthiest people I knew. And then um, my ovary started to grow and I went to have a hysterectomy and the pathology came back as breast cancer. So it's, you know, needless to say, really shocking. Um, and because it had metastasized to my ovaries, I knew that it was bad, right? It wasn't in my breast anymore. So when they said stage four, I knew that things were not good. And um, Now, this is not ovarian cancer at this point. This is still breast cancer, Yeah, right? yeah. Because a lot of people think cancer. that if it moves to another part of the mm -hmm. body, now it's no longer breast cancer, but that's not true. That's right, and it's a good point. Um, I hear a lot of people say, you know, well, she had breast cancer in mm -hmm. whatever year, and then many years later died of brain cancer. But the truth is that the breast cancer just spread to the brain 
um, or the bones or the lungs or mm. the liver. That's where it really likes to go. And my metastases were to my entire pelvis, all of my reproductive organs, my liver, and my bones. Wow. So at this point, you are living with a terminal diagnosis. Um, obviously, when you found that out, um, devastating news, what was the first thing that was going through your mind at that point? The first thought that I had was what this meant for my daughter. Mm. I have one daughter that's my biological child, and you know, my first thought mm. was, well, did I give this gene to her? Do I have a genetic predisposition to cancer, and did I pass this on to my child? That was, you know, my kids come mm. first, and so mm -hmm. that was the first thought that I had. And then the second thought was just, you know, I have to live like hell for the next however many years yeah. I have. Yeah. You know, they told me I had two years to live, and that was really hard to accept. But I knew that I wanted to make it the best two years of my life, and so I did. And how and long ago was that? That was just over three years ago. Awesome, awesome. Good for you, good for you. Um, now, you, you talked a little bit about the fear that you had in potentially passing this down to your daughter. Um, I read in your bio that your mom was also diagnosed with um, breast cancer. Mm -hmm. um, she didn't have MBC, but she had an early, right. early stage. Right. Um, so obviously, it runs in your family. Um, but that's not necessarily something that has to be true for women to no, be diagnosed No, actually with very, very few people have a genetic disorder. I mean, mm. if you test for BRCA1 or 2, it's, it's, it's pretty unusual considering the amount of people that are diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. It's 80% of women diagnosed and men diagnosed with breast cancer do not have a family history. Mm. So you're talking a, a pretty small percentage, you know, in comparison. Why do you think there's such little dialogue about NBC? Because right now there's about anywhere between 150 to 250,000 women who are diagnosed with stage four. Right. Uh, and um, why do you think that the narrative around breast cancer is not as inclusive of a stage four discussion uh, or narrative? Well, first, so first of all, the estimate of people that are living with stage four disease is is probably wildly incorrect and it's mm. probably way more than that. Wow. So what happens is when a woman is diagnosed with an early stage disease, she's tracked as that stage until she dies. Even if she recurs metastatic, she's never tracked as a metastatic patient. So only those who are de novo metastatic like me who are diagnosed stage four out of the gate, mm -hmm. I'm tracked as those stage four patients. But the SEER database doesn't track us. They don't track how the rate of metastases from early stage diagnosis. So one, that's really wrong. You know, if you mm. think of, if you think across the country, three million people are diagnosed with breast cancer and a third of those metastasize, that means there has to be nearly a million people living with metastatic breast cancer yeah. in this country. Um, but to your point, you know, we don't have a happy ending. Mm. You know, we're not the pink survivors mm. and we're not rah-rah cheering and mm -hmm. applauding because, you know, we beat cancer. Um, everyone says, you know, you have to have a positive attitude or just be strong or, you know, they put their pink boxing gloves on and they're yeah. like, I can beat this, I'm strong. Well, you know, does that mean that I'm not strong? Does that mean that I'm a weak person because mm. I'm, I'm going to die from this disease? But it makes me no less of a woman than an early stage person. But again, I'm not going to have that, you know, happy survivorship story. You know, I know how this ends for me. Mm. My cancer will learn to grow around my therapy. and. I will eventually exhaust all of my therapy options and I'll die. And you know, that, that's hard for people to hear 
And I think that, you know, it's really in your face and it's uncomfortable for people to talk about. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, just like you want to talk about what you do for a living, yeah. sometimes I want to talk about cancer. Yeah. And so I think that it's important, you know, for people to just be comfortable talking about this because if we're not talking about it, right, mm. there's no change that's going to evolve from it. Now, from when you were diagnosed, you've kind of really kind of uh, propelled yourself as an influencer in this community. Started out doing, I think, a hashtag campaign, don't ignore stage four, right. um, to now becoming, you know, the president of one of the largest and most active, you know, metastatic breast cancer advocacy organizations uh, out there. Um, one, where did you find the initial passion, energy? Because obviously this can be a psychologically debilitating diagnosis. Right. It is, you know? And um, it's, you can either do one of two things. You can continue to live somewhat in isolation and with your family around you, kind of getting support from an inner circle, or you can be loud and you can kind of go out there. And you've chosen to kind of really be a voice for this community. One, where did you find that energy and uh, the passion to do that in the wake of your diagnosis? And then how did you really kind of shoot up uh, uh, in terms of the recognition and the awareness that you've been able to create uh, in such a short period of time? So when I was first diagnosed, it was really hard, you know, like mm. you said, mentally, emotionally. Mm. Um, physically, it had, you know, a pretty tremendous surgery. And um, I was actually in a wheelchair, was emaciated. You know, I, I really couldn't move around. I had to have, you know, someone help me shower, help mm -hmm. me go to the bathroom. So that was really difficult for me because I've always been very independent. And it mm -hmm. took a long time to come back from that. And I couldn't see past that wheelchair and I couldn't see past that handicapped toilet seat. Mm -hmm. I just thought this is my life and this is what it's going to be until I die. But every day I got stronger and I was able, you know, to eventually walk on my own and shower on my own. And I can remember like when I could bend down and put my pants on mm -hmm. one leg at a time, mm -hmm. you know, without help. Um, that was a big deal. And so I just, you know, I just got stronger and stronger. And the more I thought about it and the more I researched how little was being done in the metastatic arena, the angrier that mm -hmm. I got. And yeah. so I think really the catalyst is just anger. You know, the energy comes from that. I try to spin it into something positive. Mm -hmm. And I joined this online support group. It's um, for women under 40 who have been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And there were about 160 of us at the time. And, um, you know, we're in there and we're talking and we're meeting each other and we're sharing stories. And we're like, something has to be done. We can't, we can't just die in silence, right? Mm -hmm. we, someone needs to hear that we're out here and we're mm -hmm. struggling. And so... I started this campaign called Stomp Out BC, and it was a viral or a virtual protest. And um, I used the hashtag Don't Ignore Stage 4, mm -hmm. which is trademarked by Metaviver. Oh, okay. So um, at the time, I didn't realize that. But um, we launched, that. We launched, and... Did they send you a cease and desist? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. But, so it launched, and we trended number two on Facebook and Twitter all day. And... Um, we had like over 82,000 people wow. retweeting and sharing and posting, and it was huge. Yeah. And so later that night, I was on the road. Um, later that night, I got a call from CJ at Metaviver who said, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, what is going on? Because their social was blowing up, you yeah, know? And yeah. so I said, look, this is what happened. This one, she was like, well, look, we're happy for you to use the hashtag, but you have to use it in conjunction with Metaviver. <laughs> like and we want you to come help us with our social media. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so that was like, that was my introduction to Metaviver. 
and here I am. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, you, we were talking back in the, in, the, in the green room about how kind of unapologetically you live. You know, you live out loud. You live your truth. You are who you right. are, you know. And uh, you had a double mastectomy. And you, you have a tendency to be online, you know, with your shirt off and you're like, this is who I am. You know, what's, what is the motivation behind this statement of being, um, you know, advert with kind of letting people know? Uh, or one, why did, why did you choose not to get um, reconstructive surgery? And two, you know, why do you feel compelled to, to kind of really show the world that this is, this is how we live, this is who we are? Right. So. Women? Um, with reconstruction, there's a pretty high rate of rejection or mm. infection, which mm. means more surgery, more downtime, more medications, mm -hmm. more doctor's visits. So I wouldn't mm. into any of that. Yeah. And you know, because I tattoo areolas on breast cancer patients, I've seen a lot of reconstruction, yeah. and yeah. none of them looked like natural breasts. Got it. I mean, it's not the same as having an augmentation. They take everything mm -hmm. off and then they reconstruct. And if you've had radiation or anything like that, I mean, it's just not. It's just not a pretty breast. Mm -hmm. um, it might look great in clothes. But, and, I, and I didn't want that, so I didn't want that look. I didn't want, you know, fake. I'm just not fake. Yeah, not yeah, fake. Yeah. It's just not for me. And um, I didn't want surgeries. I didn't want extra surgeries if things didn't go right. Yeah. So, you know, I'd never had a lump in my breast. I had a very unusual presentation. Mm. And so I opted for a mastectomy because I was fearful that the primary tumor was still there, feeding distant metastases, or maybe there was a secondary tumor that they weren't seeing. So I wanted to just have my breast removed to eliminate that. And also, to not have that constant reminder, you know, my breasts were no longer sexualized to me in any way, and I just didn't want to look at them anymore. No. I didn't want anyone to look at them. Mm. So I wanted them off. And it was hard. <laughs> it was a hard decision. Mm -hmm. um, it was hard to get a doctor to do it, to yeah. be honest. So they were trying to talk you out of it. Yeah, yeah, they told me that my quality of life would be diminished. You know, I mean, if I wanted to have double Ds out <laughs> here, no one would bat an eye. Mm -hmm. But if you go into a doctor's office and say, I want to have my breasts removed, then everyone freaks out. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to see a psychiatrist. It was a whole thing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so um, obviously that hasn't been the case. Right? No, Not no. It's, my quality of life is way better. Yeah. I don't have to wear a bra. It's fantastic. <laughs> my yoga is better. My balance is better. My back doesn't hurt anymore. I mean, I was, I'm a tiny woman, but I had big breasts. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so my back doesn't hurt. And, you know, I post my pictures topless online because I want other people, other women specifically, to see me and be like... Wow, like she could do it. I shouldn't be ashamed of my body because I hear that all the time. You know, women will say, I've been ashamed of my body since my surgery. And yeah. I see your pictures yeah. and it makes me feel better about myself. And it's like, I feel more beautiful and feminine now than I did when I had breasts and curves. You know, it's interesting you say that because I think it's so true when you see women who are post chemo, going through chemo, they lose their hair, they cover their head up, you know, mm -hmm. or if I've gotten mastectomy, I got to cover myself up, right? It's almost, it's, it's almost shameful. Mm -hmm. to be going through this process. Right. And you've kind of taken the power back and flipped it on his head and said, no, I'm going to turn it into something that could be liberating. Um, is that what you find the responses, or do you, do you still get kind of polarizing responses? Yeah, it's, pre I mean, it's pretty mixed. You know, yeah. some, people are, some people are like, right on, thank yeah. you, I appreciate <laughs> it. And some people are like, I need to put your shirt on. Or, you know, especially because I'm tattooed. There's yeah. a lot of derogatory remarks about my tattoos. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if you're commenting about my tattoos, <laughs> you miss the point of the whole thing, right? Like, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's pretty mixed. But I just, you know, it's just water rolling off my back. I don't even worry about it. So... Going back to not to stay on the breast on your breast <laughs> <laughs> on my not breast, <laughs> but um, 
you know, there's a lot of women who feel um, being preemptive in having kind of a mastectomy as a preemptive move. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something that is a can be a preventative measure in terms of, um, you know, um, stopping uh, metastatic uh, breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer from happening, or can you still be prone to it even if you have had your breast removed? Yeah, so you're still going to be prone to it even if you had your breast removed. Now, it, I mean, it'll lessen the chance, mm -hmm. but when they do a mastectomy, they don't remove all of the breast tissue. It's mm. impossible to do that. Mm -hmm. And so even if there's, you know, a few breast cells that are still there, then you could certainly get disease. I mean, I'm a good example of I never had a breast tumor, mm -hmm. right? I never had a lump even after they took them off and sent them to pathology. They never found anything in my breasts. So that's a perfect example of, you know, you don't even have to have, have a tumor in your breast mm. and it can happen. Mm -hmm. You know, as I said, my case is a little unique, but it, it can definitely happen. So even if they do it preventatively, it may lessen their chance, but it doesn't mean that they're out of the woods. Got it. Got it. Now, I mean, about 30% of women who are diagnosed with an early stage wind up getting metastatic breast yep, cancer. Exactly. So a, a lot of those women have gone through a mastectomy as well, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of proves the point that you still are extremely susceptible right. to be able to get metastatic. Right. You know it, all it takes is that one tiny cancer cell to break mm -hmm. off from that original tumor. And if that broke off before you had your surgery, and it's you know circulating through your mm. body, that cell can lay dormant for years. I mean, I certainly know women who have been 15, 20, 30 years mm -hmm. out of treatment from early stage breast cancer, and then they have a tumor in their liver or their lung. We don't know why that happens. We don't know how that happens. Um, and that's you know part of the research that needs to happen is to learn why that happens and hopefully learn how to prevent that from happening at the same time, trying to keep women like me who have already metastasized alive. Got it. Now, you obviously were extremely healthy um, pre-diagnosis, five times, um, gym five times a day, eating clean. Five times a week? Yeah, so, so. <laughs> I'd be five, jacked. Five, like, wow. uh, uh, five times a week, um, very active life. Um, you know, you obviously have a lot of love around your life with your husband and your, your children. Um, post-diagnosis now, is it, did that prepare you for a post-diagnosis kind of lifestyle? Uh, and are you seeing a lot of women having to kind of change their behavior on a dime and basically incorporate kind of new principles of living, whether it be diet, whether it be exercise? Um, how, um, how much can someone who is post-diagnosed expect to continue to live some level of normalcy there, or is that something that they have to change completely if they want to kind of enhance their probability of, of elongating their, their life post-diagnosis? So um, really, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I could eat clean or I could eat McDonald's every day. Mm -hmm. It's not going to matter. Mm -hmm. I'm going to die either way. Mm -hmm. And that's for anybody with metastatic mm -hmm. breast cancer. Um, I think sometimes we talk about eating healthy and exercising and the benefits of all that stuff, but really what it does is kind of puts blame on the patient so that like if another patient who had, say, a mm. very similar diagnosis as I do, decline more rapidly than me, we could say, oh, well, she didn't diet or exercise, but the truth is it's just shitty luck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always healthy before, and I'm healthy now. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to fuel my body, I try to take care of my body. Um, but I honored that before my disease, and so I continue to honor it now. Mm. And I, I see most people who 
you know, live one way if they're hitting McDonald's drive through <laughs> or whatever, they're, you know, not going to the gym. Like, they are not going to yeah. just change. Now, some people do because, you know, they're grasping at straws. Well, I'm going to do this and this and this, and I'm going to I'm gonna be okay. And it may make them feel better because, mm -hmm. like, you know, when we exercise and we fuel our body with good food, right, we just feel better. But at the end of the day, it's not going to change. Mm. So I, I follow you on IG, and, you know, you're very transparent on IG when you have good days and bad days. What's a good day for Beth Fairchild, and what's, what's a bad day feel like or look like for you? Um... A good day is when I get up, you know, um, I'm always sore in the morning. My, my joints are stiff. That's just a side effect of my medication. Mm -hmm. um, I stretch out a little bit, have some hot tea, mm -hmm. you know, start my day, just have a normal day, um, go to the beach, do some yoga, teach my little people, you know, like that little Stanley White Rick Center yeah. in New Bern, <laughs> shout out to my little people. New Bern in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I get to go and teach uh, yoga to kindergartners. It's pretty cool. Um, you know, a bad day is I just, you know, I don't want to get up. Mm. It hurts. I don't want to put my feet on the floor mm. and start the day. I don't want to face it. You know, it's like, it's a big deal to get up and, like, even look in the mirror. You know, like, mm. you're, look, you're facing your own mortality every single day. Yeah. And you just push past it. And some days it's just too hard to push, push past that. How does this, um, how's this, you know, you talked a little bit about the fear you have for your daughter. How has your relationship evolved, changed, um, you know, since, since your diagnosis? Um, I'm not sure it has a ton mm -hmm. uh, because I've been doing so well, you mm -hmm. know, they're like just regular kids mm -hmm. and I think that's cool. I just want them to be regular kids. Yeah. I don't want to be mom with cancer. Yeah. I just want to be mom. I think I'm a little less, um, I don't know, a little more chill with mm. them. You know, I used to be really strict and, you know, they're... You let them sneak out the house a little bit more now. I'm just kind of like, whatever. <laughs> Do you want your boyfriend to come over? It's fine, whatever. Like, I'm just a little more relaxed because I want to, you know, I want to see them do all these things, you know, that maybe they wouldn't have done had I not had cancer. Like, my daughter went to India for a medical internship and... She saw some graffiti on the wall and took a picture of it. And she was like, Mom, I want this to be my first tattoo, and I want us to get matching tattoos. And I thought about it because I told her she wasn't allowed to get tattooed until she graduated college. But I thought, I mean, she's a good kid. She's, you know, good grades. And I thought, well, maybe when she turns 18, I won't be well enough to be tattooed. So we went and got matching tattoos. Nice. <laughs> you know, and so that was, that was kind of cool. That would have definitely never happened if it weren't for cancer. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I mean, I think we're closer. I think um, I think my whole family pretty much realizes the the weight of this situation, mm. and so you know we don't take for granted just the mundane things, and you know how big of a deal it is to just like cook out together or sit by the pool together. Mm. It's a blessing. Is that the biggest experience you've or lesson that you've taken away from this experience in terms of? Uh, I mean, you mentioned um, you know. Um, focusing on, on the little things and those things. Is, is there another lesson that you've taken from this experience or something that you've learned about yourself that you didn't know to be true? Um, 
I mean, I just think living for the day, right? Like when you're young, you say, well, mm. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get a cool car when mm. I get a job, mm. you know, when I, you get that job and you get that car and then you want a house, mm -hmm. you know, and you're like, I got this house. Mm -hmm. And after I get my master's degree, maybe I'll get married and then maybe I'll have kids. And then people ended up putting this stuff off and, you know, you're just living for the next thing. You're mm -hmm. living and working for the next thing that you want in your mm -hmm. life. And, um, I was doing that you know, mm -hmm. I was, I was doing that. And I should have just been living for me and doing yeah. what I want to do. And, you know, as long as my kids are taken care of and I'm a good mom, like, what difference does it make? So I just, yeah, I mean, I, I've learned that. Like, I just live for me. And I really mm. just don't give a shit what other people think. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to bring harm to anyone. But, you know, if I if I want to go to Thailand and ride <laughs> elephants, and I want to hop on a plane and go to Thailand and ride elephants. I mean, I just... I don't know. If I want to take my shirt off on the beach, I'm going to take my shirt off on the beach. If I want to tattoo my face, I'm going to tattoo my face. Yeah, I mean, so you speak <laughs> about, you speak about uh, well, I mean, it's evident that you live with a level of freedom. You know, you, 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 if, if there was a rock star in NBC, you would be, you'd be the rock star. You'd be the, I don't know about you'd that. You'd be the headliner of the NBC concert. But uh, um, you sound and you come across... Uh, of someone who who obviously has reached a level of spiritual enlightenment, has yoga helped you kind of tap into more of a spiritual center? Or, I mean, you've obviously done yoga even prior to your your diagnosis. But do you think uh, having an experience with yoga has helped you kind of tap into a spiritual energy that has powered you through some of those rough moments? I'm not. I'm not sure I could um, attribute that to mm. yoga. I mean, mm. I've pretty much always marched to the beat of my own drum. Mm. I've always flown by the seat of my pants and mm -hmm. never been on any kind of schedule. Mm -hmm. And shit just always works out for me. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I can't explain it. Yoga is um, yoga is my happy place, you mm. know, where I get to be quiet. My mind gets to be quiet, and I can work on my body. But you now, I mean, I've always kind of had just I don't know an old soul maybe, mm -hmm. where I just like. And I'm just just real and transparent, mm -hmm. and I think that's how everybody should be. So let's segue a little bit to the work you're doing at Metaviva. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your role as president and what you know kind of your job description entails on a day-to-day -day basis? So um, really, outreach is probably the biggest thing that I do is just mm -hmm. making connections for mm -hmm. the organization, introducing people to Metaviva, talking about Metaviva. I'm really proud of the organization, yeah. so you know I'm always happy to like meet people and explain to them what we do and mm -hmm. the research that we fund. Mm -hmm. But I would say, yeah, outreach is definitely like the biggest hat that I wear there. And and uh, the the main goal of the organization is awareness um, about NBC. Or the main. The main mission of Metaviver is to fund research mm -hmm. for the metastatic patient, um, hoping to improve the quality and extend the life of that patient. So the research that we fund specifically is no prevention, no mechanics of, so no prevention of metastasis, no learning how it happens, but just focused on patients who are living with disease and trying to find you know, research that will lead to more treatment options. And, and, and do you think that there's a lot of proactive investment right now in the kind of health sciences community in terms of investing in research that could potentially lead to a cure? Where, where are we as a health industry with respect to MBC and the research that's going into preventative therapies? Well, we're losing 
you know, about 41,000 men and women a year to metastatic breast cancer, and that number is unchanged mm. since they started tracking it in mm. the your database. So where are we now? Not much further than we were 30 years mm. ago, which is, which is a shame. Um, there's a lot of money being put into prevention of breast cancer, which is great. It means mm. a lot to, to yeah. my kids, right? Yeah. But for me and for those who are living with metastatic breast cancer or for anyone who has had an early stage diagnosis already, it doesn't do us any good. What we need is top-down research. We need to start at the top. So if they can fix people like me and they can keep me alive for a normal lifespan, then no one will ever have to worry about having an early stage diagnosis because even if you metastasize, you know that you're not going to die. And I see, you know, the the median survival kind of creeping up, right? Like mm -hmm. 30 years ago, you were diagnosed, you maybe had a few weeks to six months to live. Now you have 18 to 36 months to live. Well, 18 to 36 months isn't the greatest, but it's better than just a few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but if we're able to continue to develop therapies that'll keep these patients going, you know, a bridge to a bridge to a bridge, so to speak, then we could render this a chronic disease instead of one that's terminal, much like we did with HIV in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's a cure. There's no magic cure. Mm -hmm. There's over 18 different kinds of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So there's no one cure, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is certainly feasible that we could develop enough therapies that, you know, once one runs out, you just go on to another one and um, have these things that are available for people to stay on long-term for many years. You know, happily, happily take my mm -hmm. therapy every day for the next 20, 30 years, as long as it's working. Awesome. Beth, you are a light that shines on all of us, an inspiration, um, just an amazing person. Your energy is incredible despite what you're, you deal with every day. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing your story with us. Um, not only your story, but just incredible factual information that I think is going to help a lot of people. If there was a tidbit of advice that you can give um, a newly diagnosed woman um, or man with metastatic breast cancer right now, what would it be? That they're not alone. There's mm. many people just like them living, living out their same story. And they can go to metaviver.org and find someone to connect with. You don't have to do it by yourself. Awesome. I'm Joe Anthony. This is Beth Fairchild. She's definitely a hero. Thank you so much, Beth, for Thanks joining us. Thanks for having us. me, Jeff.